You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, everybody say went in. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looked in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened." Lord Jesus, we pray right now that you would make preaching easy and you would make hearing your word a delight. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that our church service today would cause all of us to be willing to run to a tomb with hope. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated this morning. One of the things I love and appreciate dearly about my life is that after all of these years, I'm 36 years old, and after all of these years, I still have a tremendously good relationship with my father. And one of our new, we've done it twice now, one of our new traditions as father and son is we, and, and we do this ultimately to serve the Lord, because God tells children to honor their parents, and I know my dad, he loves games, and he loves golf, and he loves watching golf on TV, and so it is my self-denial to spend four straight days, probably close to 24 hours in four days, watching the Masters with my father, taking time off of work, denying myself to leave the baby with Jacqueline, (laughs) offering to eat the food my mother has made, my dad and I, for four straight days, offering to do it as service to my mother, because how wrong would it be if she made all that food and nobody ate it? That would be disrespectful. And so my dad and I, we go through this labor of love to watch golf for four days together. And this year, my man Tiger, he won the Masters in amazing fashion. And as we say, the network that hosted the Masters has almost as good of a tech guy as we have at our church. And so they were quickly trying to get as much Tiger Woods documentary as possible, and they were throwing up interviews and highlights of all the years, and all of a sudden it became about the comeback, and you know it was just constant Tiger Woods footage, and as we were listening to it, 
at one point, somebody asks Tiger Woods in an interview done maybe a few months before the Masters, they said, how, how is it possible that you can play golf, a sport where it's supposed to be quiet, and you have turned the sport into a football stadium? How do you putt and concentrate when people are screaming? And they were like, how did you even make putting cool? And Tiger said, even the roar of the crowd is different now. So when I first started and I was doing well, people would clap a lot. But nobody claps anymore on the golf course. They scream a lot now. And the reason why they scream is because they can't clap anymore. And the reason why they can't clap anymore is because they refuse to put their phones down to enjoy a moment. I said, Tiger, you better preach right now. You just gave me my opening for Easter Sunday. Thank you very much. Side note, how many know, at least you know, at least I think, it's very important to read our Bibles all the time. But when you close it, don't stop listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do a lot of dramatic pauses for some. It's Easter, Salem. If we make God functional, we close our Bible, we close our ear. That's not what the Bible is telling us to do. We're not reading the Bible well if we close it and stop listening to it. There are so many lines in life, so many moments to capture everywhere that the Holy Spirit keeps talking to you. And this was one of them. They can't clap because they refuse to put their phones down. And so a good friend of mine here sent me, we were talking about this, and he sent me a meme of a picture of a little old lady who's watching, we don't know what it is, a parade or something. And if you look around you, there's only one person in this picture that's actually watching what's happening. <laughs> Through some big glasses, but she's watching what's happening. We are so obsessed with missing the moment that we actually no longer see moments. We watch our phones watching moments. We watch our camera lens watching moments. This lady might not be able to recall footage of what she's watching. But listen to me. She won't be able to recall footage of what she saw. But of all the people in this picture, she's the only one who will be able to tell you about it if you weren't there and you feel like you were there. Because she received what was happening. She became a participant in what was happening. Everyone else is trying to log what happened. Everyone else is trying to get into a filing cabinet what happened. She actually felt what is happening. So somebody else might be able to pull it up on a phone, but she'd be able to tell that story better than somebody's iPhone could show it again. It's important that we don't obsess over missing a moment so much that we actually are in the moment and we don't see it, that we don't experience it. Some of us are obsessed with capturing the moment because we're so insecure with our lives that we need other people to see the moment that we were in all the time, like taking pictures of our breakfast and sending it out onto the social media world. (laughs) Maybe I do want you to see what I'm eating. Maybe I don't. I don't know. But isn't it funny that when we take pictures of things and we put them on social media, we could even mess with the pictures now a little bit? Like your house could look a little more clean than it really is. Just kind of like crop out. Oh, well, my closet's open in that picture. Let me just get the picture in a little bit. You could 
Make yourself look a little younger if you want to. Blot out some shadows. Put a little filter on there. You can make your lawn look like it's a little greener than it really is, like you actually did something on a Saturday for it. You could take pictures at the beach and make your body look a little more than it really is, you know? We, and when we know a moment is coming, God help us, we get everything ready to the ninth degree. I mean, we, we do it here. Like, we, we take such good pictures here. I'm surprised Santa wasn't under the baptismal waters last night with a perfect lens taking pictures of what happens when we went down. Like, we, when we know a moment is coming, we go crazy to try to capture it. And here's the resurrection of Jesus, and no gospel account talks about him coming out of the tomb. Like, if Jesus rose now, the resurrection would not trend on the internet. It wouldn't break anything because Jesus would have risen when no one's phones were rolling. Now, I don't know, I know some of you know me, and I, I'm told, and I, I don't agree with this, but I told them I'm a little bit dramatic. <laughs> I love those laughs. <laughs> yeah, okay, no, you are. I don't think I would have risen from the dead the way Jesus did which probably means I wouldn't have risen from the dead because God knows I wouldn't have done it like Jesus did. But if I was going to rise on the third day after you all smacked me in my face and pulled my beer out and punched me and made fun of me when I was trying to forgive you, have you ever had a gotcha moment with somebody where they were just even a little rude to you and then something good happened to you in front of them and you just wanted to pose for a moment and make sure, like you hit that three and just held the hand up for a minute <laughs> to let them know? Can you imagine this level of gotcha? They killed you, and you're not dead. There's no coming back from this one. So here's what I would have done if I was a dramatic person. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like. If I knew I was going to die on Friday, on Thursday, I would have sent out some save the dates. And I would have sent them out on Thursday, so you got them after I was dead, which would have been really weird. But I know, see, if I was Jesus, I would know the culture that I'm in is such an obsessively curious culture that when you got to save the date that said, please save the date and be at the tomb in Galilee on Sunday morning early, everyone would be like, this is sick. He's crazy, and I'm not going. But you'd put it on your fridge because we like to put things on our fridge because it makes people think we have a social life. And so we put it on the fridge. Friday would be horrible. Saturday would be horrible. Saturday night, you'd wake up to go get a snack and be like, huh, why would he send a save the date to be at a tomb? And so being the curious culture that we are, we are terrified of missing out on stuff. So we would go to the tomb. Hey, I'm going to go for a walk. And we would go to the tomb. And I would be in there, obviously now risen, but I wouldn't have come out yet. I would have probably like spoken a little bit of a peephole through the stone and I'd just be watching to see what it would be like, like once everybody showed up and then I would wait even a little bit longer to the point where they were doubting me again. We knew we shouldn't have come and then right about at that moment, I, would, I wouldn't roll the stone away because that would be too conventional. I would kick it down really, really hard and I would raise from the dead to a very specific soundtrack so I would come out to a very specific soundtrack, and I would just be like.
You remember me? Pilot, what up, Pilot? You remember me? Herod, what up, Herod? All right, you remember me too? You good? Everybody good? I'm cool, we're cool. Everybody's cool. Play that one more time real fast. It was just so good. Like, just come out of the tomb and just feel real good about yourself. You could even get the tiger. Just keep it going. I would do all that stuff. It would take me, all right. It would take me three days to end my presentation of rising on the third day. It would have taken so long. All of that to say, that's why I'm not Jesus. (laughs) When he rises from the dead, nobody sees it. Because when all we want is for the moment to be seen, the people who see it are only spectators. They'll never be participants. They'll never be called into your moment if all you want is for them to watch it. The best people will do is say, I saw it, but that's it. Jesus doesn't want us watching the resurrection. He wants us participating in it. We'll start with Saturday before we talk about what happened on Sunday. The first thing that happens when we get invited into Jesus' moment, Jesus doesn't want us sitting down watching. He wants us invited into his moment. The first thing that happens when we get invited into his moment is trust becomes an encounter itself. Trust itself becomes an encounter. On Friday night, Mary Magdalene, who has had maybe the most profound moments with Jesus, she's dealing with the deepest loss of her life. And so she collects spices and perfume and oil because she wants to go and she wants to anoint the dead body of Jesus so she can do one more thing to try and make things right. One more thing. And, and if, if we're honest with ourselves, when, when loss of any kind strikes our life, or when disappointment strikes our life, we tend to need to be active in order to kind of mask the real actual pain that we're feeling. And so we over-talk, and we overly try and fix, and we overly try and advise, and we become advisors, and all of a sudden, we're, we're like in the middle of something that went wrong in our life, and now we're experts on that thing that went wrong in other people's lives right away. Like something went wrong in my life 10 minutes ago, and now like I have a doctor in that thing, and I could speak to anybody else about it right away. Because there's something very painful of having to sit to do nothing. And there is a space where we know If you're married to somebody or you're dating somebody, you have some friends who always do nothing, you know laziness when you see it. I love this church because I always wait to hear who says amen at stuff that you shouldn't say amen to. But there's another time where laziness actually makes us active because we're lazy when it comes to processing. We're lazy when it comes to letting things marinate and sit. We have to respond right away. We have to stabilize ourselves by doing stuff. It takes a great deal of strength and integrity and character to do nothing when doing something would be easier. The resurrection tells us that we don't have to exhaust ourselves that way. 
So Mary gathers all of these spices, and her emotions want to go to that tomb and anoint that dead body. And this is what our emotions will do to us. Our emotions will cause us to think that the best thing to do is to anoint something that's dead, and we will speak around something in our life that is dead. We will process something that is dead. We will do all of these things, like I said before, airbrush it, take pictures of it, present it in all these different ways to make ourselves and other people think it's not dead, but really it stinks. It's just smelly with perfume on it now. But the resurrection makes Mary do something. She happens to wake up on the next day and says, I'm going to the tomb. And then the law that she lives by says, today's the Sabbath. You can't. You can't go. You have to stay home. You have to do nothing. Imagine that day for her. She's got a box of her last best efforts, and she can't even go do anything with them. And God makes her wait and do nothing. Now, imagine what happens if she's emotionally impulsive, which most of us are. When, when there's space between what happened and the resolve, we tend to be emotionally impulsive in that space, and we tend to give ourselves license to be indulgent. So we'll say things like, I know I shouldn't be talking to you the way that I'm talking to you, but you don't know what I'm going through right now, so let me be talking however I want. I know I shouldn't be eating all of this right now, but you know how stressful the holidays can be, so I'm going to eat this right now, but I'm going to get my diet back going as soon as this is over. We say things like this all the time. We use, we use terrible situations to finally be able to do stuff that we know we shouldn't be doing anyway. But Mary stays home. She doesn't say, I know it's the Sabbath, but you guys don't understand the loss that I just experienced. I'm going to the tomb. She waits. If she didn't wait, all she would have ever done is anoint a dead thing. She would have gotten there, and she would have seen Jesus, and he would have been dead. And she would have put the spices and the perfume on him, and she would have went home, and she would have missed the resurrection. But the Sabbath said, can you trust me for 24 hours? Can you put your phone away and not text back for 24 hours? Can you keep your mouth shut for 24 hours and not respond? Can you not give advice? Can you not talk to people about what's going on? Can you not let everybody know everything that's happening? One of the things that I was just talking about with somebody in the church is that when we have wounds, we let everybody know, and then when they become scars, we want to get plastic surgery, but it should be the other way around. We should be quiet while we're wounded, and as soon as we heal, we should flaunt the scars. Happy Easter. Would you put the, I got knocked down back on real fast? Can you just, can you click that on real fast? Real fast. I'm going to make it work just to make sure everybody's with me. All right, good. Just want to make sure everybody's here. She waits. And then she gets up at the beginning, and I love it. She gets, up, she gets up early because now she's allowed to go. And she brings, and that is the last time you ever hear about those spices and that perfume. Because she went there thinking she was going to anoint a dead thing, and an alive thing ended up anointing her. Because while she was sitting down quietly on Saturday, she didn't know that Jesus was in hell fighting for her. The loss that she thought she had was now fighting for all the other losses she's ever had. Her ability to be quiet gave the space for her heart to receive something that she could not predict was going to happen. And so when we're emotionally impulsive and we have to react right away, there are often times where the best we'll do is prop up something that's broken anyway and feel good about it, when if we wait and we give God that time, all of a sudden something greater may happen. Something greater than what our impulsive emotional thought was at the time. 
when the Israelites were faced with Pharaoh's army charging behind them and the Red Sea in front of them, God performed this wonderful miracle where he parted the Red Sea. But it says in the text that while they slept at night, a great wind parted the sea. It was when they were sleeping. It was when they were doing nothing. It was when they had to lay down and trust. When, Jesus, when, the, storm, when the boat was swamped by a storm, where's Jesus? He's not bailing water. He's resting. The text says in Genesis that the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day, which means all the work you hear God doing, he's doing at night. All of God's creative work is done at night. The Red Sea parted at night. Jesus, on the darkest day of the, of the universe, on the whole day that he was in the tomb, he's down in Hades, fighting battles we didn't even know existed. And we have to wait. When we have to wait, and you're willing to put those spices aside, you're getting ready to experience the resurrection of the thing that you wanted to go spice up. Instead of just repairing it, it might be restored. So that's the first thing that the resurrection invites us into. The second thing that the resurrection invites us into is it invites us into this moment where emptiness is an encounter. First, it invites us to know that trust is an encounter. On Saturday, when Mary was sitting at the home doing nothing, she didn't realize she was already beginning to encounter Jesus. And now she gets up, and she runs to the tomb, and I want to read Matthew's version of this real fast. Matthew's version of this is, in my opinion, is my favorite uh, few verses on the resurrection. Matthew 28, and it says this. Now after the Sabbath, when Mary was home, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. There was an earthquake. An angel came out of heaven. An angel rolled away the stone. And Jesus was already gone. The stone was rolled away so that we could see that Jesus was already gone. Which means Jesus rose from the dead and somehow manifested himself through that stone. So these guards who were keeping watch and the seal that they put over the stone, the guards were there and the seal was intact and they were guarding absolutely nothing. They weren't guarding anything. Jesus was gone and they didn't even know. Again, remember my resurrection account of how I would have done it. Everybody would have seen. Nobody saw Jesus raised from the dead. Nobody saw him get up. The stone was rolled away in every gospel account, not so that we could watch Jesus walk out, but so that we could be invited into the emptiness of the tomb. The accounts of the resurrection are not proof texts about how Jesus rose. They're invitations. They're save the dates. They're moments where we're invited to go into what we thought was occupied, and it turns out it's not. That's what it's about. This is what God wants us to know. He doesn't want us to know how Jesus rose. He wants us to go in and see that Jesus rose. The resurrection accounts are about us. You hear me preach, it is all about him. No one in this room could ever say, I don't preach that, it's all about Jesus. But the highest point of Jesus' existence is all about us. It's about us going in. It's about us being invited into emptiness. 
Emptiness is something that we avoid like the plague. And somehow the resurrection changes our association with emptiness. We have to hear this. This is emotionally healthy to the highest extent that I could possibly describe. We busy ourselves, exhaust ourselves, fool ourselves, trying to avoid ever having to roll away anything that would show that we're empty inside. We avoid our emptiness at all costs. So what does God do? God has to re-narrate emptiness for us. And so he rolls away this stone in dramatic fashion. He descends and starts, he, he has a call to worship. And there's an earthquake. And people see the angels and they bow their heads. In another gospel, Mary stands crying and she meets Jesus. And when she meets Jesus, she doesn't know that it's Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener, which is a perfect expression of how so many of us treat Jesus. We don't treat Jesus like he's the restorer of our soul. We treat him like he's a gardener, like his only job is to just beautify and prune a little bit. But leave the, leave the main stuff alone. Just, just make me look nice, gardener. It's more than that. He's more than that. And when she first sees him, she doesn't understand who he is. And then she talks to him a little bit more, and then she does see who he is. And in other narratives, the angels are inviting people into emptiness because you can't walk into your emptiness by yourself. You need divine prophecy and divine intervention to be able to walk into your emptiness. The funny thing is, if we just put it all together, what does this sound like? A place that is supposed to be a place of mourning becomes a place of tears, becomes a place of hope, becomes a place of joy, becomes a place where people are running to it and running from it with losing their breath and running back and telling people, you got to go to the tomb. The most amazing thing happened at the tomb, and no one's ever said that kind of thing before. What has happened to the tomb? It's become church. The tomb has become Sunday morning worship. A place of rotting carcass has become a sanctuary. All of the makings of church are there. Prophecy. Angelic visitation. Bowing heads in worship. Running joyfully. Meeting Jesus. Meeting him one way and understanding him better when you leave. That's what's supposed to be happening here, amen? For what purpose? First, God wants us to know that he inhabits every space. His emptiness shows us that he inhabits all spaces. Why? How can you say that? Because if he's present in the tomb on Sunday, then that means he's nowhere else. But if he's not present in the tomb after dying, then that means he's everywhere else. And if God is everywhere, then that means God is nowhere If God is everywhere, that means God is nowhere. Raise your hand if you've been lost before driving. And you've said something like, we're in the middle of nowhere. Even if you were in Manhattan, we tend to say that. I'm in the middle of nowhere. We don't ever want to be nowhere. Nowhere is a bad place. But here's the reality. If God is everywhere, then that means God is nowhere. What do I mean? I mean that place, whatever we would call nowhere, God's there now. So if you feel like you're nowhere in life, he's there. If you feel like your life is in the middle of nowhere, God inhabits the place called nowhere now. He lives in nowheresville. He's in the town called nowhere. He's the mayor of nowhere. He's in that place. You can't find a place now. There's no loneliness that's so lonely that God is not in that place of loneliness, making it not lonely anymore. He is nowhere now. 
He's everywhere, and he's so everywhere that he now can be in that place called nowhere. But this is why people are afraid to come to church. And this is where the final part of the resurrection narrative that we, that we read really matters. People are afraid to come here because in order to truly experience God, you have to relate to your own emptiness first. If we come here too full, we'll experience of God who's patient enough to step back and wait until we're empty. We have too much going on to experience him sometimes. The, those of us who have met him in deep ways, we've met him in our emptiness. We've met him when there were no other options. We've met him when we've done all the intellectual thought we could. And if you haven't yet, he'll wait until you're done. He's very patient. And he's not worried because he knows he'll meet you. That's why he doesn't come out to a soundtrack. He silently comes out and he just waits for you to get to the tomb. Somehow in life you'll get there. And there won't be anybody there. And you'll relate to emptiness differently than you've ever related it to before. They go running from the tomb. And they say, you got to go to the tomb. There's exciting things there. And all the men are like, okay, like, you're weird. There's exciting things at the tomb. Sit down. You've been out in the sun for a long time. And you have the 11 apostles. Are, it's, it says it was an idle tale to them, except for one apostle. Every, ten of them were like, bah, this is terrible. But one apostle was like, yeah, 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 this is terrible. This is stupid, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go outside for a second. I'm just going to take a little walk here. Going through a lot. I denied him three times, and then he died. So I'm having a worse day than everybody is having. I'm going to go for a walk. And as soon as he's out of sight, he's like, they can't see me anymore. I'm going to the tomb. And he runs to the tomb. But why does Peter run to the tomb? Why doesn't Matthew run? Why does Peter run? Because the one who is now in touch with his emptiness is able to feel the call of the resurrection. But he's not out of it yet. Stephanie sang no bondage. And no bondage doesn't mean no bad circumstances. Peter's still in. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. Look at this. He's still under the sway and in the reality of his denials. Like, and in Luke's gospel, when he denies Jesus for the third time, Jesus in Luke's gospel sees him and looks at him. Has anybody ever been given the evil eye by a, teacher, by a teacher in class when you were like in kindergarten or in grade school somewhere and you would, you'd be talking and then the teacher would be at their desk and you'd look over and they'd be staring at you and then you'd put your head down and like five minutes later you'd look and they're still staring at you and in your head you're like, do you even have anything to do over there besides stare at me? Like I'm trying to get my work done and you're staring at me. Imagine... No, I don't know Jesus, but you sound like you know him. No, I don't know him at all. I saw you with him. No, you didn't see me with him. And then you turn around and there's bleeding Jesus. And he sees the last denial. You can't get that out of your head. It ends any hope you have of thinking you'll ever be a good person. And Peter's under that. When Paul and Silas are in prison later on in the gospel, we all know the famous verses that says at midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns unto God, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the prison doors were shaken and everyone's bonds were loosed, right? And the prison doors open. But then it says in the morning, the jailer called out when he saw the prison doors open and said, is anybody still there? And Paul and Silas both say, we're all still here. Now think about the song Stephanie sang. There is no bondage. You could still be in the prison cell, but no longer be in bondage. This is, so, this, is where, this is where we get our dance from. This is where our praise comes from, right here. Paul and Silas are still in prison, but the doors are open. They're in there, but they're free. The prison circumstance hasn't changed, but they're no longer captive to it. The sorrow that you feel for loss in your life, that might not go away, but the captivity it holds over you can. The disappointment you feel about how your life or your children are turning out, that's real, but the captivity it holds over you, those prison doors have opened. And now we have the freedom to stay in sour circumstances and release praise and prayer in them so that other prisoners can hear the sound of an Easter praise in prison. And the funny thing is, they were praising before the earthquake, which means that the resurrection makes you free even when the bars are still closed. Whatever. I get knocked down, but I get up again. That's John. John just says that's the funniest white people song ever. That's what John says. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Like, that's the best we can do. So that whole thing, like this whole sermon is in honor of John Laurent, our resident piano player, who does an amazing job with the worship team. Peter is still under the sway of these circumstances, but he gets up and runs because the resurrection invites us into a third reality. It invites us into the, poss into the reality that possibility itself is encounter. Possibility itself is encounter. We are called to minister. We're called to parent our children well. We're called to be salt and light in the earth. And so many of us burn out because our success is rooted in the final conversion of a person. And so if we're ministering our whole life and it doesn't seem like people are catching, you know, the cold of the gospel and we're trying to sneeze ministry on them and they're not getting sick with the flu of the gospel, we start to burn out. But we're not called to save anybody. We're not called to convert anybody. We're called to be people who continually create the possibilities in somebody's life where conversion can happen. We're called to hear and listen and see what's going on in their life and say and do something that could create space that can rent a veil in their life and give them the chance to see Jesus. Mary, all she did was run back and say, nobody's in the tomb. I'm, I'm, Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're like, nah, you're lying. And Peter goes, and what does Peter see? He doesn't see Jesus. He sees grave clothes. And it says that he marveled at what he saw. The one in whom there was emptiness walked into emptiness and became full. Peter who had, he's the last one who should have gotten up to run because Peter's safer if Jesus is dead. If Jesus is alive, that means I need to meet him. I need to talk to him. But something about that appealed to Peter and he ran. All our job is to do is what Mary Magdalene did. I've seen Jesus and we're called to say it in thousands of different ways. 
and just hope that one day it creates the right possibility at the right moment and somebody runs to a tomb that they've been hiding from and this time they go in and they see emptiness and they realize the emptiness they've been avoiding is Jesus himself. We're called to be possibility creators. We're called to just find ways to keep possibilities in front of people and one doesn't work, start another one. And when that one doesn't work, start another one. And when that one doesn't work, start another one. I'll keep saying it until you clap. And when that one doesn't work, start another one. And when that one doesn't work, start another one. We have to keep trying to create possibility in people's lives. But the only way that we can learn to create possibility in other people's emptiness is if we walk into ours and if we experience this place was originally supposed to turn into a funeral parlor. And it's a sanctuary now. I don't know that there's a better building in the world that speaks to what happened on Easter. A tomb became a sanctuary. And in that tomb, now become sanctuary, people learned how to deal with emptiness. And when people there learned how to deal with their emptiness, they ran to other people's emptiness and got those people to run into this emptiness, and everybody left full. Don't come here on Sunday guarded. Come here naked and ashamed if you are. Come here naked, not ashamed if you are. And please understand, that was a metaphor. Because I'm learning as we go here that this church is a bit crazy, so let me specify when I'm talking in literals or metaphors. Some people are laughing, but it's really good that I specify that from time to time. The one in whom possibility had run out is the one who ran to this empty space of possibility. That's what he's calling you to right now if that's you. And that's what he's giving us the power to do because there's a lot of emptiness out there. There's a lot of people who can't wait on the Sabbath. They have to keep working and they're exhausting themselves trying to avoid themselves. They're trying to capture every moment because they're too afraid to live in it. It's our job to not criticize and critique or be rude or judge. It's our job to invite people into this room that was supposed to be a funeral parlor. It was supposed to be a place where dead things are anointed and it has turned into a place where dead things walk in and leave alive. That's what this place has become. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Every Sunday, we're called to take the trip that Peter took. He ran from a home to a tomb, and we run from a seat to a table. And we run to broken pieces. And we run as broken pieces to broken pieces. This is the most freeing moment in a Christian's life when we come to a table that looks a lot like us, but when we leave, we look a lot more like him. And so if this is your first time here, I want you to know as a pastor of this church that we, we believe in an open table. We believe that the Holy Communion table is itself a converting sacrament. We believe that we're supposed to bring our badness to this table. Somebody, somebody got me at the door uh, in the first service, and they said, have you ever heard of the Great Exchange? And I, I think maybe I said yes, but I didn't know because sometimes I'm too proud to say I don't know about something. <laughs> Listen, I come, to the, I come to the table every Sunday, too, for my own reasons, so leave me alone. I got a lot of reasons. I take Eucharist with them, and I take it again here. Listen. And she said, you know, I go to an Episcopal church, and... She said, the great exchange is when we, we bring, what we bring to the table is our sin. And we get to leave it there. And we get to exchange it for his brokenness. 
I said, like, are you free next Sunday to come to the church and preach for a little while? That was really actually good. And she said, the great exchange is beautiful because we're just as excited to lay our sin down as Jesus is to take it up. And so that's what we're here to do. I want two things to happen to you at the table this morning before we get ready to leave. The first thing is, if you're here and you struggle with just being honest about what might be in your tomb, you want to keep that stone rolled in front of it, you want to keep it sealed, and you want to keep guards in front of it because you're embarrassed or shamed or feeling guilty or all kinds of other negative emotions about what might be in there, I want to tell you that those guards were guarding something that wasn't there and so are you. If you think there's shame in there, you're guarding something that's not there. If you think there's guilt in there, you're guarding something that's not there. If you think there's condemnation in there, you're guarding something that's not there. Push that stone away. It's empty inside. All that's left are the grave clothes of your past, but nothing else. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. There's nothing there. And I want us all to come and realize that in this meal, in God coming and giving us this meal, he makes us the kinds of people who can speak like Mary Magdalene spoke on Easter Sunday. Speak something obvious, something plain, something normal, but speak from your heart. And then just let people think it's an idle tale. Go ahead. Because one day, curiosity will take over. And they'll run to the tomb to see what's going on. And in the emptiness that they see, they'll realize and walk away amazed at the things that have taken place. Holy Spirit, I want you to anoint this church to be people who can have the words, let there be in our spirit, the creative power of you, Lord God. And I want us to be able to create possibilities, not to coerce, not to manipulate, not to out-argue, not to out-intellect, but to just create real possibilities out of the possibilities that you've created in our lives. Our existence right here, God, it's impossible. But you've created possibility where there is no possibility. And so I pray that we would speak out of that. If this bread and this cup could become the body and blood of Jesus, our words could become the presence of God in somebody's ears. And so I pray that you anoint all of us to be real with our emptiness. And then to speak out of that realness into the emptiness of others. And so, Lord Jesus, we stand here on this Easter Sunday and we think back to Thursday night. When on the night when you were betrayed, you held up bread. And you could have said, this is my body broken by you. But you said, this is my body broken for you. And you held up that cup. And you could have said, this is the cup of my blood which is shed by you. But instead you said, this is my blood shed for you. Thank you for removing the word by and putting the word for. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And in the same way, I pray that you would fall on this congregation and make us for the world, the church, the body of Christ. I pray that we would leave here today after partaking of this meal, people who offer our bodies to the world, 
and create possibilities, if we could just create a chance that somebody could meet you, our homes, our streets, our neighborhoods, our communities would change. And so we thank you that you invite us to run with Peter to your table. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.